From the studios of the Mayo Clinic News Network, this is Mayo Clinic Radio, exploring the latest developments in health and medicine and what they mean to you. Welcome everyone to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. In the U.S., someone has a stroke every 40 seconds. A stroke occurs when blood flow to an area of the brain is cut off, depriving the brain of oxygen. The good news is that strokes can be treated and prevented, and many fewer Americans die of stroke now than even 15 years ago. May is National Stroke Awareness Month. On today's program, we'll learn more about stroke from a Mayo Clinic expert. And then later on the program, Dr. Tom Shives joins me as co-host. We'll hear about a new effort to educate patients and providers on how genetic information can improve health care. And could gray hair be an indicator of cardiac risk? Hmm, all that along with this week's health and medical news right after this. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. And I'm Tracy McRae. According to the National Institutes of Health, there are more than 800,000 strokes each year in the United States. Interestingly, stroke is the fifth leading cause of death in the United States and causes more serious long-term disabilities than any other disease. A stroke occurs when the blood supply to part of your brain is interrupted, depriving brain tissue of oxygen and nutrients. The good news is that strokes can be treated and prevented, but knowing the warning signs and taking quick action is key. May is National Stroke Awareness Month. Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic neurologist and stroke expert, Dr. Robert Brown, Jr. Hello, Dr. Brown. Good day. Great to be here with you. Are people becoming more aware of stroke? Let's start there. Well, because stroke is a preventable and treatable condition, as you just mentioned, our goal is to get the word out to the greatest extent possible. So when people have stroke-related symptoms, they immediately recognize it, and they will seek emergency care, for one. And number two, stroke can be prevented, not always, but sometimes we want to make sure people are aware of the risk factors for stroke. So, Dr. Brown, there's a spectrum of symptoms from a stroke. So can you go through those and when one should worry and when one shouldn't? Yes, certainly. Well, the symptoms at presentation of stroke include the sudden onset of weakness of the face, arm, or leg, sometimes in combination, sudden difficulty speaking, sudden difficulty understanding others, sudden blindness in one eye or the other, sudden unexpected headache unlike anything they've ever had before. So these are the the classical symptoms of stroke. And you can get what I'm pointing out here. It's the sudden onset of difficulty doing something oftentimes is the key symptom at the time of stroke. But sometimes, as you said, these are the sudden and they're, and they're long-lasting. But you can also have transient symptoms. So how does one determine if this is just something that's going to go away versus something more serious. Yeah, and for the layperson in the room, the transient symptoms. Explain that, please. Yes, yes <laughs> absolutely. Well, the symptoms I just mentioned a moment ago may come on and last for several minutes or hours and then resolve. And that's historically called a transient ischemic attack. So symptoms that can mimic stroke, but they're transient. They come and go. Now, very importantly, whether those symptoms are transient or or whether they come on and last hours or, or days, 
it's still a very important symptom. And even if the symptoms come and go, it's important to present to your provider, to an emergency department, and share the fact you've had these sudden onset of symptoms because that does predict a very high risk of stroke in the hours and days that follow. And now, I don't know about all around the world. I mean, we're this radio show goes on to over, I think, 177 stations now we have. and But I will say that uh, in the Midwest, mm-hmm. on the farm, uh, that transient ischemic attack is called a spell. Mm-hmm. And my relatives would have a spell, and they would say, oh, it's just a spell, don't worry about it. And it's true, my grandpa would be better after he had a spell, mm-hmm. but ultimately died of stroke, mm-hmm. as did my father. So are people hearing the lesson about the TIAs, about spells, and reporting them to their doctors more now than they used to? I think the short answer is yes. The little bit longer answer is because now we have strategies available to prevent a future stroke after these TIAs occur, or we have acute treatments that exist in the emergency department setting for someone presenting with a stroke, it's more and more common the situation a person does recognize it and seeks emergency care. But unfortunately, not all people recognize those key symptoms of stroke I mentioned sure. a few minutes ago. Right. And given how important these symptoms are, is there an easy way for people to remember those uh, symptoms? Yeah. Well, there are many different strategies. One that has been marketed most aggressively sure. is FAST. F for face. Facial drooping is sometimes a, a symptom that can occur. A for arm arm weakness, S for speech, slurring of the speech can occur, and T is for time. Emergently seek care because time is of utmost importance when it comes to treating a stroke. Am I imagining it or are younger people having strokes these days than even a generation ago? Mm -hmm. Well, importantly, just as you're getting at, stroke is not just a disorder of older people. Stroke can affect someone of any age. It affects both genders, women slightly more common than men, people of all races and ethnicities. So this is a disorder that's pervasive in all people. And in answer directly to your question, we're now recognizing that younger people are slightly increasing in terms of their overall occurrence of stroke compared to years past. And there's many reasons behind that, but we are recognizing stroke in younger patients. So there are younger people having stroke for the same reason that older people have stroke? Yeah. Well, I, I should step back and mention, it's, it's useful, useful to point out, there are two key types of stroke, and I think it's important to start with those basics. The two key types of strokes are ischemic stroke, or a lack of blood supply to the brain, caused by a blockage in the artery for one of many different reasons. And then there's also a bleeding or hemorrhagic stroke, and what happens there is that the blood spills outside of the artery into the brain tissue. About 85% of strokes are ischemic strokes, the lack of blood supply strokes. About 15% are the bleeding types of strokes. So the the ischemic one that you mentioned, is that like having a heart attack but for your brain? Exactly right. And the key difference is when it comes to the arteries of the brain, there are so many different factors that mm-hmm. can lead to that blockage, mm-hmm. as opposed to in the heart, there are much fewer men or fewer conditions that can lead to the blockage in the heart artery. So when it comes to the ischemic versus the hemorrhagic, yeah. do young people have one more than the other? Do 
elderly people have one more than the other? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, both of them are of higher occurrence as we do get older. Okay. But both hemorrhage, bleeding types of strokes, and lack of blood supply strokes can occur at virtually any age. Okay. The most common cause of a lack of blood supply stroke is atherosclerosis or plaque. Mm-hmm. Plaque being laid down in an artery either of the neck or up in the brain tissue, and then that plaque can lead to a narrowing and then ultimately a blockage of the artery, somewhat akin to that same plaque that can form in the heart arteries, just as you mentioned. So, Dr. Brown, let's let's talk about that a little bit. We talked about age and we talked about plaque. What are the risk factors for stroke? Mm-hmm. The key risk factors, there are four major risk factors, high blood pressure, cigarette smoking, elevated cholesterol and other lipids, and diabetes. So those are the, the big four, the most important risk factors. Other risk factors, though, include a sedentary lifestyle that is not getting much, if any, exercise, obesity, being overweight, of obstructive sleep apnea, which is a certain sleep disorder that can occur, and then heavy, heavy alcohol use. Those are some of the other risk factors as well. What, what about ethnicity? Does that have a role to play? Great question. In terms of ethnicity, African Americans and Hispanics are of slightly higher risk of stroke compared to whites. We've been talking about Stroke Awareness Month with neurologist Dr. Robert Brown. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, myth or matter of fact, you can recover completely from a stroke. We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Sanj Kaka. And I'm Tracy McRae. We're talking about stroke with Mayo Clinic expert, Dr. Robert Brown. So Dr. Brown, myth or matter of fact, a patient who suffers a stroke is able to completely recover from that stroke. Is that a myth or is that a fact? That is a fact. It is. It is. With aggressive treatment of that stroke, as well as with appropriate physical therapy and speech therapy and so on, Fortunately, some people who suffer a stroke can come to have no or minimal deficit after that stroke. Hmm. Wow. So before the break, we were talking about risk factors for a stroke. And so I just wanted to ask you uh, about the role of oral contraceptive pills, especially in in younger ladies. Is, Is that a significant risk factor for developing a stroke? The risk of being on an oral contraceptive and the risk of stroke is extremely small. And in addition, because the risk of stroke in young, otherwise healthy women is small to start with, that incremental risk is just tiny. Now, if a young woman is a smoker or has high blood pressure or diabetes, then adding the oral contraceptive can increase the risk a bit further. But in the absence of those risk factors, the risk of stroke on oral contraceptive is very low. Smoking, blood pressure, diabetes. What about family history? What if, like I was saying, my grandfather, my father? I mean, what is the family history Mm -hmm. in this part play? Yeah, family history is important, and we think about it in a couple of different ways. Sometimes the elevated risk of stroke in the family is related to risk factors that Mm -hmm. high blood pressure, high cholesterol, diabetes might be running in the family. Now, separate from that, there are some circumstances we see 
where the fam- family-based risk is separate from those risk factors, and that can help to guide us in terms of our stroke prevention strategy. So we always ask about family history. Mm-hmm. That helps to guide us. So, Dr. Brown, speaking about preventative strategies, what's your thought about taking a baby aspirin? Is that a good thing to do? Should we take it every day? Uh, what, what do you think? Yeah, great question, and it is individualized to a specific person. The problem with aspirin, and I'm the first to say aspirin is a great medicine. Mm-hmm. We use it very, very frequently in the field of neurology. But the problem with aspirin is it does have some potential downside as well. It's a blood thinner, albeit mild blood thinner, and so there is a risk of bleeding, whether it be into the stomach tract, if you will, or even into the brain or other parts of the body. So it depends on your specific profile. If you reach a certain age, oftentimes in the 50s, in your 50s, and have other risk factors like high blood pressure, high cholesterol, or diabetes, you may end up taking a low-dose aspirin, and it might be greater risk or greater benefit than risk, but it's really individualized. All right, let's talk about treatment, because you said if if, uh, you recognize the fast, let's see if I can do this, the face, arm, the speech, or the time. Very good, Tracy. I just about remembered the F. Did you see? (laughs) He's like, it's time. Um, uh, So you get into the emergency room. Um, Then what happens? What is the treatment? Well, treatment for stroke has changed so markedly, certainly during the course of my career. Uh, In the late 1990s, it was identified that a clot buster, tissue plasminogen activator, a strong clot buster, could be used to try to break up that clot that is blocking the artery, leading to the blood starting to flow again and reducing the, or, or improving rather, the outcome from the stroke. Now we've gone even one step further beyond that, and now we're using, I'm going to say, catheter-based devices. Well, what does that mean? It means you put a little plastic tube in the groin artery, advance that catheter all the way up into the brain artery, oh. and extract the clot from the artery directly via that little catheter. And so that's oftentimes what we might do now in an acute stroke setting give the clot buster, and then immediately go to the angio lab and our interventional neuroradiology and neurosurgery colleagues can go ahead, advance that catheter, and extract the clot directly from the artery. The clot-busting drug that you're talking about, can that take care of it so that by the time you get there with that catheter that it's already gone, or is it still left behind? Yeah, that's a great question. And in a small percentage of people, the intravenous clot-buster can break up the clot to a sufficient degree, but we'll oftentimes know that even by the time we get to the angio room, the deficit, meaning the the symptoms that a person is experiencing will begin to improve, Mm. and sometimes we can then avoid the angiogram, but oftentimes the clot remains, and then we need to go in there and see if we can't extract it, take it out of there. And Dr. Brown, I can imagine that time is of the essence for this, so are we talking a matter of minutes, hours, days? What are we talking about? Mm -hmm. Well, when it comes to to giving the clot buster intravenously, we try to give that as quickly as we can. Now, we can extend the window up to about four and a half hours for the intravenous therapy and up to six hours for the direct arterial therapy that I mentioned a moment ago. But I think the key point is the earlier we can treat, the better off a person will be. And it's amazing. Somebody who's treated at 90 minutes compared to somebody who's treated even at 120 minutes, Mm -hmm. the likelihood of a good outcome is much higher 
at that 90-minute mark than at 120 or 150 minutes. So every minute matters. We've talked in the past about uh, the robots that are helping patients in far-flung parts of the country where maybe there is not a neurologist on staff. Tell us a little bit about that. Is that still going along? Is that still progressing? Yeah. And Tracy, what Tracy is getting at is the concept of telestroke. And what that means is a provider at a major medical center would interact with a colleague at a smaller medical institution an hour or 10 hours or whatever the case might be. Out in the middle of the range. Out in the middle of (laughs) of nowhere, if you will. Mm -hmm. And we can see that patient via an audio-video connection. We can perform an exam. We can review the CAT scan, which is the picture of the brain. And we can help to advise them regarding whether they might start that clot buster and then transfer them to a major medical center. And these telestroke networks are present throughout the country and really throughout the world. And that's one way of connecting with people who are hours away from a major medical center. Now, Dr. Brown, you mentioned earlier that most of these strokes are the ischemic one where you have a blood clot, but sometimes you can have a head bleed. So how do you know if you have a head bleed? Because surely you wouldn't want to give this clot busting agent if you have a head bleed. How do you know that? Great question. And the short answer is the symptoms can sometimes help, but the CAT scan. Obtaining that picture of the brain, a CAT scan provides very, very quickly information for us in terms of is it a bleeding type of stroke or is it a lack of blood supply type of stroke. We'll know that right at that point and then be able to implement the best treatment. How likely is a patient to survive a bleeding type of stroke? Yeah, well, bleeding type of stroke, and here again, there are a couple of different types, Mm -hmm. but that's a very serious type of stroke as well. And even at the 30-day mark, about a third of people who have a bleeding type of stroke will have died Mm -hmm. from that stroke. So it's a very serious type of stroke. A brain aneurysm, which is a little saccular, little bubble-like outpouching off an artery, that's one of the causes of a bleeding type of stroke. High blood pressure, though, very important risk factor for bleeding type of stroke as well. And what now in this final part of our interview here should people do to prevent or lower their risk of having a stroke? Mm-hmm. Well, I think most importantly, know your blood pressure. And if you have elevated blood pressure, seek out appropriate treatments. There are many excellent treatments for high blood pressure. Know your cholesterol level. And if it's elevated, whether it be with dietary factors or medications to lower it, if you have diabetes, control it very, very nicely. And stop smoking. If you smoke, work with your provider to do anything possible to quit. And then beyond that, exercise. Even a small amount of exercise on a daily basis will lower your risk of stroke. One area of stroke neurology that's out there uh, right now is whether stem cells may become a treatment after the acute period of stroke. And that's in experimental phase right now, but that's a potential direction we might be going in the future. May is Stroke Awareness Month, and we've been talking with neurologist and stroke expert Dr. Robert Brown, Jr. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Brown. Thank you again. Appreciate the opportunity to be here with you. Still to come on Mayo Clinic Radio, we'll learn about genomics education, helping patients and providers understand that information. And later on the show, why gray hair may be an indicator of heart disease. Do you have a health-related question you'd like us to answer or a topic you'd like us to cover? You can tweet us anytime at hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio or send us an email at mayoclinicradio at mayo.edu. Coming up, the latest health and medical news with Vivian Williams. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Hi, I'm Vivian Williams with your Mayo Clinic Minute. 
Peel into a banana and you'll discover a bunch of health benefits. Bananas are higher in potassium. Dietitian Angie Murad says potassium can help you maintain a healthy blood pressure and... It just can help maintain adequate hydration. In addition to potassium, Murad says bananas are a good source of magnesium and vitamin C and B6. They're also low in fat. They only have 4% of their calories coming from fat, but it has a special kind of fat that is structurally similar to cholesterol, so they can actually inhibit the absorption of cholesterol. A medium banana also provides energy, about 27 grams of total carbs. Some of that carbohydrate is a unique kind of carbohydrate that's digested further down in the lower intestines, so it also helps us maintain healthy gut bacteria too. Speaking of the gut, this grab-and-go snack also contains about 3 grams of fiber, which can provide a longer feeling of fullness between meals and aid in digesting food. And in other news, ingrown toenails are a common condition in which the corner or side of a toenail grows into the soft flesh. The result is pain, redness, swelling, and sometimes an infection. Ingrown toenails usually affect your big toe. Often, you can take care of ingrown toenails on your own. If the pain is severe or spreading, your doctor can take steps to relieve your discomfort and help you avoid complications of ingrown toenails. If you have diabetes or another condition that causes poor blood flow to your feet, you're at greater risk of complications of ingrown toenails. So you can treat most ingrown toenails at home, and here's how. Soak your feet in warm water. Do this for 15 to 20 minutes, three to four times a day. Place cotton or dental floss under the edge of your toenail after each soaking. Apply antibiotic cream. Choose sensible footwear. Also, to help prevent ingrown toenails, trim your toenails straight across. Keep toenails at a moderate length. Wear shoes that fit properly. Wear protective footwear and check your feet daily for signs of ingrown toenails or other foot problems. For the Mayo Clinic News Network, I'm Vivian Williams. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, as we've talked on this program before, it is now possible to routinely sequence a whole human genome. I mean, you can get your genes checked. Okay. <laughs> and access to genetic testing, whether it's through a doctor um, or online for checking out your ancestry, sure. it's become pretty much readily available. And the field of what's called individualized medicine is trying to improve the diagnosis, the treatment, and the prevention of disease based on your unique genome. But how do patients and their providers understand the implications of having this genetic information? And how can it be used to improve healthcare? At Mayo Clinic, the Center for Individualized Medicine educates members of healthcare teams and patients about personalized or genomics medicine. Here to discuss genomic education is the director of the education program for the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine, Dr. Timothy Curry. Welcome to the program, Dr. Curry. It's nice to meet you. It's a pleasure to be here. Dr. Tim Curry, you know, he is also an anesthesiologist. So almost every other day, I see him in the operating uh-huh. room. You know what, Dr. Curry? I knew you were smart, but I didn't know you were this smart. So <laughs> you got to tell us about uh, the, the human genome, individualized medicine, and how you educate providers and patients about this. And as you do that, you have to remember, and as you know, I'm a bone doctor. She's a layperson. <laughs> so talk slowly and, and keep it simple. <laughs> yeah, what is the goal for the uh, Center for Individualized Medicine? 
So the Center for Individualized Medicine is really a, a, a group of a bunch of investigators and, and people who are trying to innovate at Mayo Clinic to bring genomics to patient care, and that's really what we want to do. Um, the education component of it turns out it's a lot more important than people maybe realize right up front because you had to learn about this new field, and it's not just the patients that need to learn. It's the doctors. It's the nurses. It's, it's the researchers that have to learn about how they're going to use this information going forward in the future. And how do you go about trying to teach someone about the human genome and its implications? Yeah, it's, it's a lot bigger deal than I thought it was going to be when I when I signed up for this position. <laughs> you signed on. Um, so one of the first things we have to do is, is educate our Providers, um, we've got physicians and, and physician um, nurse practitioners and physicians assistants and nurses and pharmacists and and researchers who all have to really understand how this information is being used. Um, this field is moving fast; it, it's moving extremely fast, and, and the stuff is starting to get into our medical practice now. Um, it's in our medical records currently. We've got patients that have genomic information in there, and we have to mm-hmm. figure out how we're going to be able to use that information. It's one thing to just understand genomics; another thing is to understand how to use that information to actually impact patient care. Well, and it's a- another thing to have an education program. So are you talking about educating the patients or what is it that you do? The the answer is yes. We're Mm -hmm. educating everyone. We're looking at educating primarily our providers and our patients, but the public in general um, and our children that are going to be the next professionals in this field. And how long does it take? If we said, Tracy and I, you know, we'd like, tell us about the human genome, what, what we need to know about it. How Educate long would it us. take? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it takes a long time. It takes a long time just to become familiar with the language. Uh, it's, it's created all new words and new processes and, and just new ideas that have gone forward. And then to be able to take that and use it in the clinical practice is the challenge. So there's all, we, we talk about different levels of people uh, or different levels of education that people need to know. So there's going to be people who are the absolute experts, the leaders, the innovators. They're the ones that know the very little details about how the gene unwrap and get duplicated and, and how they get passed on. And then there's going to be the provider, maybe an anesthesiologist or a surgeon that just needs to know this patient's information that's in the medical record. How does it impact my care in that patient today? And we've got ways of doing that that's real-time education. We use it, things like Ask Mayo Expert or some of the other electronic tools that are out there. Or we may deliver clinical decision support to the provider at the bedside. What do patients need to be educated about when it comes to individualized medicine? And that's a real challenge. In fact, we, uh, we're collaborating with the NIH and the National Human Genome Research Institute to try to figure out how do we generally improve human uh, genomic literacy. And they're really focusing on three groups of people. There's the, the, the K through 12 or K through 16, really, um, including our college pe- uh, students, to bring them and have them the education, both as consumers and, and hopefully providers and researchers of the future. Our public, which includes our patients, but includes maybe their families and, and others, and as well as our providers. And so when the public needs to know about this, they need to know that it's coming, and they need to know that they can have that discussion with their provider. In fact, we learn a lot of times it's the patients and it's the public that drives a lot of these conversations, not the providers. So who has had uh, their human genome checked? I mean, you say that it's in some patients' records. Who and why? And if I came in and said, I'd like you to do my human genome, would, would Mayo do it? So I have. Um, I've had my testing done with regard to how my body interacts with the various medications that I might have. Um, There's some people that have their entire genome sequence, and that hasn't been that long since that's happened. Um, It's available commercially. It's available at Mayo Clinic if the right indication is there. And what we're now starting to do is do it what we call preemptively, meaning that we're going to test people before they even get their patient care so that that information will be in the medical record to do it. There's a really neat research project that's going on in Rochester right now. It's called the Right Study, which involves the right drug at the right time for the right person. There's going to be 10,000 people that are part of our our community biobank. They're going to have their genomic information regarding their medications put into the medical record over the next year or so. 
My job as an educator is to teach the physicians, the nurses, the pharmacists how to use that information and when to use it at the right time. Do you use that information now? Yeah, we do if it's available, and um, and knowing when to look for it is part of the hard part. Um, as an anesthesiologist, there's a couple rare but very relevant d- diseases that we have to pay attention to, and we've known about these since the 50s. In fact, anesthesia was one of the first areas that started looking at this, how our bodies respond to certain medications. The hard part is letting our providers know that this information is there. We're not used to looking for it. We're used to looking for people's glucose levels or their x-rays, but we're not used to looking for genomic information when we start to make those decisions. So what we've done is for some of the important stuff, we've actually put it into the electronic prescribing process. An alert will pop up and say, you should test this person before you give this medication, or this medication may not be as effective for this person. Consider this alternative. Really? That means it's right there, and that links right to more education that we're developing along the way. And when it comes to something, a daily medication that someone would take, like a heart medication or an antidepressant, that has to make a huge difference. We've got patients out there that will attest to how much it's changed their lives. Such as? Um, well, we've got individuals that have come in, and they found out that they weren't getting the right medications. They were having a lot of side effects and they went through the testing and they were able to get their medications back on track uh, in collaboration with their providers and then suggest that their, their family members get tested. And they found out things about their own body. It's a little bit of a challenge now. We're still learning a lot about the science of it all. Um, you mentioned depression drugs. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a place where Mayo Clinic has been very active for a long period of time, trying to figure out how to use this testing to be able to help prescribe medications. It's still really early in the field, so we're still learning a lot about the right way to do this, which is the reason why we're doing that study, um, and learning about the right way to help providers use that information in their daily prescribing and ultimately empower the patient so that they can use it in their information as well. So if you know uh, what a patient's human genome is, that will help you determine which medication will be most effective for them, particularly with with regard to depression and possibly other Sure. Diseases? Let's take an example, a very common pain medicine that people hear about all the time, codeine. Everyone's heard of Tylenol and codeine. Well, it turns out that codeine isn't an active drug. It has to be metabolized your body into something that we all know about, which is morphine. If you can't turn that drug into the effective drug, you're not going to get any pain relief. So people that never got pain relief from these medications, if they had that information in there ahead of time, might have been able to prescribe a drug that was more appropriate for them and that would have worked. Wow. So what's the future? The future of this is data. It's huge amounts of data and trying to figure out how to use all of this information and use it in the right way. So the University of Illinois, is they've got big computers, really big, fast computers, supercomputers, the fastest in the world. They're able to use those computers and people that are trained in studying what's called bioinformatics or the, the information about biology and, and medicine to try to help us understand how to use this information in our patient care. So we help train them on how to use this in the medical perspective, and we learn a lot from them about how to use the, the analysis of the information. For So education-wise, aren't you uh, developing a master's program uh, in genomics? Yeah, so, I mean, the workforce of the future is really where this is going to come from. You know, we learn from our trainees a lot. Um, they bring new ideas and new energy, and they're the ones that really get us to start doing more things. If we train the medical students or the, the clinicians that are trying to get more infor- more uh, experience in doing clinical research, they're going to be the ones that are driving this forward in the future. So we, we're developing a master's concentration with our clinical uh, investigator program uh, and our translational research uh, master's degree. We've brought this to the medical students. There's now a selective where medical students will go through all the parts of individualized medicine. And it's not just the genome or just about drugs. It's about a lot of other things. It's about cancer. It's about understanding our microbiome that lives within us. Um, so it's a really big field, but 
we introduce, we're trying to introduce people at a younger and younger age because they're the ones that are going to be driving the future of all this care. Gosh, it's all pretty exciting. The it director is. of the education program for the Mayo Clinic Center for Individualized Medicine and an anesthesiologist, my <laughs> colleague in the OR, Dr. Timothy Curry. Thanks so much for being with us. Thank you. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, what does gray hair have to do with heart health? We'll find out. You're listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Welcome back to Mayo Clinic Radio. I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Tracy, have you ever worried about getting gray hair? (laughs) (laughs) Got a long list of things, but not yet. There is actually some new evidence that suggests that your hair turning gray might have some health implications. A recent study has found that there is a link between gray hair and an increased risk of heart disease in men. I don't know about this, Dr. Shives. I don't either. The study of 545 adult men conducted by Cairo University found that the same mechanisms that cause arteries to clog, known as atherosclerosis, also cause the hair to turn gray. I hope it's only true in Egypt. You said Cairo? (laughs) Yes. If untreated, atherosclerosis can cause serious heart conditions, including stroke, heart attack, and even heart failure. So should your hair going gray predict your risk of developing heart disease? Here to discuss is Mayo Clinic cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Welcome back to the program, Dr. Kopetsky. Thank you, Tracy. Oh, Dr. Kopetsky, it's great to have you here. Are you you believe this? If your hair turns gray, it increases your risk of heart disease? Well, unfortunately, Tom, I think that's true. I was actually in, as I told you, Cairo last week and talked to some cardiologists there. And what they found was that uh, if you did have gray hair, prematurely graying hair, you had a little higher increased risk of having coronary artery disease. Just a little higher. Just a little bit, about 30% higher. They looked at other things like diabetes, like smoking, like high cholesterol. It more than doubled your risk. So, uh, it, so it's yeah, but it was an independent, as we say, an independent risk factor. I mean, after they adjusted for your age, adjusted for your cholesterol, your diabetes, the whiter hair still predicted coronary disease. You did say prematurely gray. So when is it okay for your hair to turn gray? Uh, it'd be a year older than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so what you're saying is, if if you start, if you're one of those people who, you know, some people turn gray yeah. in their twenties. You know, if you have right. prematurely gray hair, that this right. is actually a risk factor for you. Right. Well, I think the key to this is inflammation, meaning that, you know, I tell patients the the inside of your body looks like the outside. You know, your skin when you're 60 is not as soft as it was when you're 20. Your hair is not as pliable as it was when you were 15, whatever. The same thing with your arteries to your heart. And if you have inflammation or things that irritate different cells in your body, that leads to things like white hair. It leads to things like rough skin. It leads to things like coronary disease. And they're all together. And so that's why things that reduce inflammation, like getting good sleep, like having like not smoking cigarettes, like eating a Mediterranean diet with olive oil and nuts that have good anti-inflammatory properties, will actually prevent coronary disease, will prevent graying of hair that's been shown, will prevent the skin being you know rough and such. And when you say coronary disease, you mean the, the arteries that supply blood to the heart. But I want to ask you about the the hair, the graying hair. It's my understanding that the reason that your hair turns gray is that the pigment cells mm-hmm. um, die. Mm-hmm. So you don't you don't your hair isn't brown or, or black or red anymore. Uh, but the hair follicle itself must stay alive for the the hair to keep keep growing. Mm-hmm. So how to me that just means that uh, those cells have worn out. What's it got to do with inflammation? Well, inflammation stresses every cell. And so if we don't take care of our bodies and take care of our cells, in other words, they get stressed, they die early. 
It could be an artery lining cell like a atherosclerosis or coronary disease, narrowing the arteries to the heart. It could be a hair cell. It could be a brain cell. We know that these processes all go together. Alzheimer's is more likely when you have a pro-inflammatory diet, pro-inflammatory lifestyle, the dementia. We know that diabetes is more common. We know that coronary disease is more common. Now we're saying gray hair is part of it, too. <laughs> well, I don't know if I should feel good about this or not because it's 500, uh, over 500 men were studied. Uh, can we correlate this to women? Probably so, but it happens oh, to right. women about 10 years later than <laughs> okay. men. Okay. Uh-huh. So you mentioned the big risk factors. We know that this is probably contributes minimally um, as, a, as a risk factor, premature graying. But you also talked about smoking, uh High cholesterol, did you mention that? Yes. Diabetes? Yes. Um, high blood pressure. Correct. Should that one be in there? Yes, it should be in there. Did we miss any? Uh, family history, you know, your genes. Oh, hereditary. Okay, yeah. so if you have a history of heart disease, that significantly increases your risk. And all of those are bigger risk factors for heart disease than is premature graying, would you say? Is that yes, fair? Yes, that's what the study showed. All those are more or bigger predictors. All right, so uh, people in the in the audience who may have turned prematurely gray, they may be a little concerned by this study. So what do they do to find out if they are, in fact, if their heart is healthy and if, in fact, they are at risk. Well, what they did in this study, they judged the coronary atherosclerosis or narrowing of the arteries to the heart by doing a CAT scan of the heart and looking for calcium in the lining of the arteries. We know that if your artery lining, all of our arteries have a lining like wallpaper on the wall, if something damages that, like smoking, like stress, like cholesterol, like prematurely graying hair, then calcium gets laid down in that lining as a re- as a reaction to the damage. Is that a good test? I mean, should should people have that test? Well, it is a good test. I think it's very helpful in the right patient. We don't do it in patients that are uh, that have already have heart disease because it doesn't tell us anything that we don't already know. We don't do it in really young patients, say under age 40, uh, a man, or under age 50, a woman, because it, they don't have time to develop calcium. It's more in the 50 to 60 uh, age range for the men, 60 to 70 for women that we do it. So that's better than a, than a treadmill or other tests that you have to assess the heart function? Well, it looks at something different. The treadmill actually says, does the heart get enough blood when you're exercising? The CT scan says, has something damaged the lining of your arteries? Has inflammation occurred on the lining of your arteries? And that's an earlier process than you would see an abnormal stress test, for example. So you, what would be an indication to do that test? I mean, just having gray hair and being 50 wouldn't be a reason to do the test if you had no symptoms? No, it wouldn't. But if you go up by the uh, airport in the Twin Cities around uh, February, heart month, Valentine's Day, there was a sign that said, Honey, don't forget your CT scan for coronary calcium, you know, love, you know, really? your wife. And so you can get them for $100, $150. It takes one second of radiation. It can, if you have a negative CT scan for calcium, uh, it puts you at a very low risk for a heart attack over the next five years, less than one in a thousand. You can get this test for 150 bucks. That's the going rate. Why wouldn't you? Well, people, some people don't like radiation, especially women that have had breast uh, cancers or don't want to expose their breasts to radiation. They don't want to get it, and that's certainly understandable. But some it's people, a CT. It's a CT scan. But it's a minimal amount of radiation, and it costs 150 bucks and takes how long? One, well, one second of, of uh, x-ray, but it takes a longer to get you on the table and get the test and all that. It, everyone is going to end up eventually being elderly, so is everyone going to end up having heart disease if you live long enough? 
Is it a benefit of living long enough? Uh, everybody gets some narrowing of their arteries, pretty much. We get atherosclerosis. We don't all die of it, although it's the number one killer of people in the world now. So I think it's, uh, it, it is pretty much something we're all going to get. Premature gray hair does probably have a correlation with heart disease, minimally increases your risk, and it's been confirmed <laughs> by preventive cardiologist Dr. Stephen Kopetsky. Thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. And that's our program for this week. Find more information on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Tweet your health and medicine questions to hashtag Mayo Clinic Radio. You've been listening to Mayo Clinic Radio on the Mayo Clinic News Network. Our producer for the program is Jennifer O'Hara. For Mayo Clinic Radio, I'm Dr. Tom Shives. And I'm Tracy McRae. Thanks for joining us. Any medical information conveyed during this program is not intended as a substitute for personal medical advice, and you should not take any action before consulting a healthcare professional. For more information, please go to our website, radio.mayoclinic.org. Please join us each week on this station for more of the medical information you want from Mayo Clinic specialists who know.